Hi folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the Kingdom of God. Today is episode 84 of the Jesus Society Podcast, and I am here with my coffee, as usual. And I think um, the rest of my family is uh, asleep or, um, or uh, I don't know, doing something else in the rest of the house. So I'm in my little, little cubby hole, looking out at the, at the beautiful spring that is blooming here in southern Middle Tennessee. This is this is one of my favorite times of the year. Um, leaves are popping out. Um, here in Middle Tennessee, the the red buds. If you don't know what red buds are, um, you're you're missing something beautiful. Um, red buds for me are always the the first real sign that spring has sprung. Um, they just kind of dot the landscape. They're a tree. Red buds are a tree. If you don't know, and in the spring they put out these these beautiful purple buds that um, kind of dot the landscape, and you can just look out and see a hillside with uh, barren trees but it, but in the midst of them you'll see you know a red bud here and a red bud there and you'll see this little splash of purple and uh, just a, it, it's really pretty and I've, I've always liked them but you know leaves are popping out um, the red buds are coming out the flowers are blooming um, for me uh, an important part of spring is that the, the wild turkeys are gobbling and the fishing is great <laughs> Those things to me are all very important and um, deeply moving and and spiritual even. Um, All of creation is just bursting forth with fresh new life. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, there is a a significance in this time of year for another reason. At this time of year, the Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And for that reason, Easter is, is a much more significant holiday in my judgment than, than even Christmas. And because this coming Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, Easter, uh, I want to talk again today about the resurrection of Jesus. And I know we've talked, and I know we've talked about the resurrection before. We talked about it last week. But there's more to say. And because it is so significant, and and because in the last several years I have come to realize just how significant it is, more so than I or anybody around me ever really thought, um, I want to talk about it again this week. And I want to start by asking you to uh, close your eyes for a minute. Now, if you're driving and you're listening to this podcast, don't close your eyes, okay? That's bad. But if you if you have if you have the ability and you're not driving, um, try to close your eyes and, and put yourself in the story that I'm about to tell. The year is 33 AD. You're in the city of Jerusalem, and you're one of the disciples of Jesus. The one you and the rest of the disciples call the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, 
Lord. You think all of those terms fit. For three years now, you've been following Jesus around the countryside. You've left everything to follow him. And what a ride it has been. You've seen him heal lepers. You've seen him give sight to the blind. You saw him one time make a man walk who hadn't walked in 38 years. You've seen him calm storms. And one time he even walked on water. And oh, to listen to him speak. It's not just some preacher spouting platitudes and giving commands and making people feel guilty. No, after Jesus speaks, people feel better. They feel hopeful. It's as though God himself is speaking. And you've watched those religious leaders try and and slander him and, and trip him up and catch him in some kind of trap. But every time Jesus has seen through their schemes and very calmly has said something that just confounded them sent them home scratching their heads. You've just never seen anyone with such wisdom or such love or such power. And no one, I mean no one, cares for people more than Jesus. He's never too busy to talk to a child. He's never so put off that he's afraid to touch a leper, for goodness sake or visit with a woman who is so tarnished that she has come to draw water during the middle of the day just to avoid the glares of the glares of the women in her town. No, there's there's something different about Jesus. He's the first person that you've ever met in your life that you would follow anywhere. And that's exactly what you've committed to do. Follow him anywhere. But now he's dead. You've given three years to his cause, but more than that, you've given your life to him, and now everything seems to be crumbling around you. The one you thought could handle anything, the one who could heal the sick and restore sight to the blind and and walk on water and even raise the dead, for goodness sake, is now himself dead. And the despair is coming over you in waves. Even three days after his death, all you can do is cry. Disappointment. Uncertainty. Fear. Despair. Hopelessness. Those words summarize the the mood of the disciples during the, the three days after Jesus crucifixion. And we see that maybe most clearly in Luke chapter 24, verses 14 through 21. In a a brilliant piece of literature, Luke introduces us to to two disciples on their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is a journey of about seven miles, we're told. It's now the the afternoon of the first day of the week, and, and all sorts of strange things that happened that morning. And the Disciples still don't have a clue what's going on. And we're told that that as they walk, that together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And, And while they were discussing and arguing among themselves, 
Jesus himself came near, the resurrected Messiah, and he began walking along with them, but they were prevented from recognizing him. And then he asked them, what is this dispute you're having with each other as you're walking? And immediately they stopped walking, hung their heads, and looked discouraged. And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in those days? What things? he asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. And here's the the sentence that tells us everything we need to know. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Now, when you when you read this passage, don't don't rush past this verse to get to the next one. Pause at this sentence and let it sink in. Jesus' followers had such high hopes. The Messiah in the person of Jesus had finally arrived in Israel. This was a moment their people had been waiting for for ages. And the flood of messianic expectations all came rushing forward. Forgiveness, the long-awaited end of exile when they would no longer be under the thumb of an oppressive, evil, pagan power. And above all, the return of their God to his rightful place in their midst. We've, we've talked about those things before. The Hebrew scriptures had offered the Jews a story in search of an ending. Jesus' followers thought that ending was going to happen with Jesus. And of course, they had particular ideas about how those things would play out, and those ideas weren't necessarily correct. But their excitement and hope were unassailable. Until, that is, Jesus was crucified. You see, there had been other would-be messiahs in Israel's recent history, and all of them thus far had ended up dead. And you see, messiahs don't die. They conquer. And if they die, well, they weren't really the messiah after all. And the two men on the road to Emmaus that day, heads hung in despair, voiced the broken dreams and lost hope of the whole of them. We had hoped that he was the one who would redeem Israel. But that is not the end of the story. Because as the two men on that road uttered those words, they did so not knowing that the one to whom they were uttered was Jesus himself, resurrected, newly embodied, and newly enthroned as Israel's true and rightful Messiah, their king. And they can't possibly know at that moment that what just happened won't just change their lives, and it won't just change Israel's problem with the Romans. It'll change the world forever. 
because God has at last stepped in and began to put right everything that is wrong about everything in the world, to make everything new. And these two discouraged young men, along with the host of Jesus' followers, still mourning and weeping in that upper room back in Jerusalem, and even you and I today are going to be part of that. So let's go back to that upper room. You're sitting there and you just, you just, this, this despair is laying heavy on you. And all of a sudden, while you're sitting there, the tears still wet on your face. When you're sure that life as you know it is over, the doors burst open and it's Mary Magdalene. She has just been to the tomb. She'd gone there with Jesus' mother to anoint the body of Jesus because she didn't have time to do it on Friday night because the Sabbath was about to start. But Mary bursts in and says that the body of Jesus is gone. Well, you get up and you and, and immediately take off for the tomb. You, you've got to see this for yourself. And you run the whole way. And one of the other disciples, disciples and sure enough, the body of Jesus is not there. The stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. Mary tells you later that she saw an angel there at the tomb who told her that Jesus is risen from the dead. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Is what he'd said. This coming Sunday, throughout the world, Christians will celebrate what we have come to know as Easter, an event that centers around the resurrection of Jesus from the bed, from the dead. But most of us really don't understand the significance of that event. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead stands as Christianity's most remarkable and most important event. In one act, Christianity is transformed from a nice idea to a powerful, life-giving, world-changing revolution. The resurrection is what gives Christianity its power and its hope. And the resurrection is significant because it means that God is finally undoing the effects of the fall of man, taking back the world from the dark powers who control it and engaging in what the Bible sees as the work of new creation. And Jesus' resurrection is the definitive sign of God's new creation, that God is making everything new and fixing everything we know to be broken in the world. And with a, with a more careful reading of Scripture than the one many of us have grown up with, what we find is that Jesus is actually coming back to transform us into the people he wants us to be so that we can help him transform the present world into the place he wants it to be. And the classic passage that we've often misread where we see this, and there are many other places that bear this out, but the classic passage is Philippians 3, 20 and 21, <clears throat> where Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven and we wait eagerly for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power 
that enables him to subject everything to himself. So when Jesus returns from there, he will change our physical bodies into one like his. And Paul's point in this passage is that while we live here on earth, we are agents and representatives of heaven, citizens of heaven, while we wait for Jesus to return to earth. Now, let's, let's talk about heaven for just a minute. The best way to understand heaven is not a, a place in the sky when we, where we go when we die. Heaven is best understood as the realm of God. It is God's space. Earth is our space, but from the very beginning of creation, those two spheres were meant to coexist and interlock with one another. There's not this great chasm that separates heaven and earth. And we see that in the biblical story in a number of places. For instance, in Genesis 3, verse 8, we see that when God walks in the garden in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve, God, a, 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 who belongs in heaven, is there on earth. God's temple for Israel is the place where heaven comes to earth and where the God of heaven chooses to live in the midst of his people. Heaven and earth interlock right there in the temple. And of course, in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the new temple, John 2, 16 to 21, the new place where heaven meets earth. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Paul says that we as Christians, followers of Jesus, are in fact God's temple because the Spirit of God lives in you. And so we live here as a kingdom of priests, as the temple of the living God, as God's image bearers, mediating the presence and wise healing love of God before the world. And if we, as we talked about last week, the last scene in the whole Bible, Revelation 21, 1 through 3, is not of a bunch of disembodied souls evacuating a, a scorched earth and going to heaven to live with God forever, but of a, a new heaven and a new earth with a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, we're told, like a bride, adorned for her husband. And we're told that God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. And the point is that God never intended heaven and earth to be these two separate isolated realms, but to coexist and interlock. And his ultimate plan is for heaven to come to us and for God to remake and renew this creation where we will all live together. And the resurrection of Jesus is the start of that new creation, of God once and for all setting right all the things that have gone so wrong with his good creation. The Gospel of John gives us clues to this, maybe more so than the other Gospel writers, although Luke lays it out pretty well also. John starts his Gospel, you remember, with the same words the book of Genesis starts with, in the beginning. And John is, that's not just an accident, John is intentionally making the point that at just in the same way that Genesis is about creation, the gospel of Jesus is about new creation. And in chapter 20, John is careful to tell us twice that the resurrection happened on the first day of the week. And he's not just talking about Sunday, 
For John, that's his way of saying this is the first day of a whole new world. In Colossians 1 verse 18, Paul says that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And the point is that with Jesus, everything is starting anew. It's God's long-awaited great reset. The creator, the creator has become the recreator. And we see that clearly in the resurrection, sorry, resurrected body of Jesus. Jesus is raised not with the same human body that he had before his death, one that could be battered and bruised and nailed to a cross and killed, but with a new, restored, incorruptible, but still human body. And again, at Jesus' ascension, that new, incorruptible, but still human body will enter heaven. Acts 1, 9 through 11. And because that's all true, in Romans 8, 18 through 13, 13, beautiful literary pieces in all of Scripture, Paul tells us about God's plan for the renewal of creation. He says the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. God intends the rescue and renewal of creation, not its abandonment. And there are actually a lot of passages, Old Testament and New, that laid out that expectation of a new creation. And we looked at a few of those last week, but there are a lot of others. But Jesus' resurrection shows us something of what that looks like and provides us with a promise that that it's already begun and will ultimately be completed. So if the resurrection is the start of the new creation, what's our role until Jesus finally brings it brings it about at the end? Well, our role is to become resurrection people, new life people, living at the place where heaven and earth intersect and bringing God's kingdom rule to earth as it is in heaven. When we realize and celebrate that Jesus is already reigning as king of the world, we can start to live in ways that bring forth genuine signs of new life. It's it's spring here in Middle Tennessee, and I, as I said earlier, the flowers are starting to come up and leaves are popping out and everything is beautiful and, and full of life. Our lives ought to look like that, like spring, sprouting up new life in ways that beautify and 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 reclaim our world. And we do that, for instance, by living out the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, living on earth today as if, as if the kingdom of God were fully and completely manifest. Now, we do that imperfectly, right? None of us have, none of us are flaw, flawless people. So we do that imperfectly, certainly, but we can, we can model the new creation, the kingdom of God, in the power of the Spirit in every facet of our lives. And as we do that, there are a few key signposts of the kingdom that need to come to the front of things in the way that we interact with the world as God's representatives. 
And there are all kinds of spin-offs for the church's life and work, not only in the future, but in the here and now. Um, for example, unity and holiness. Two things that are still unbelievably challenging for most churches. We, we've got to do a better job in the area of unity. Um, most churches are still hopelessly sequestered from other churches. For the people of God, people who should be shining beacons of light in our ability to get along with each other, we are often hopelessly deficient. And that's one of the things that the world sees that makes Christians so distasteful. And it makes me think we haven't really understood Jesus. In Ephesians 5, Paul points to our marriages as another place where unity and holiness should be most visible. Our marriages can and should be visible reflections of the original creation now renewed in Jesus, where we, where we learned to be committed to one another no matter what. We, we work through differences. We get along, and together we partner to bring new life into the world. There's a lot there to think about. We can also live out the values of the kingdom in our world today in the areas of justice and peace. And remember, justice is the idea of rightness. And I did uh, a whole episode about that a while back, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to that. In the kingdom of God, we become rightness agents in the world. How, how many times do you look around in your, in your town, your school, your government, your workplace, and you think, that's not right? Well, you're, you're probably right that that's not right. There's a lot that's not right with our world. We, we don't even do justice right. We don't do business right. We, we run over people and we put money and profit ahead of love and care. And we do that, God forgive us, even in the church. And where are the people of God? The people of God should be living the new creation values of justice or rightness and peace in our world. The world should see justice and peace in us more than anywhere else in the world. They should also see, by the way, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those ought to be our calling cards, our, our business cards, if you will. That's new creation stuff. And the resurrection of Jesus puts all that in motion. One more thing. The new creation work that started with the resurrection of Jesus calls us to the wise stewardship of creation. And I'm talking about the planet. I'm talking about nature. I'm talking about uh, conservation. I'm talking about creation care. The earth, the forests, the rivers, the lakes, the streams, the animals. Remember, Adam and Eve were called to tend the garden. And that included the plants and animals. They weren't called to destroy it. Christians ought to care more about clean air and clean water and wildlife conservation and habitat improvement and things like that than anybody. God's people are called to do the recreation 
in the, re, in the recreation, what Adam and Eve were called to do, tend and care for God's creation in a wise, benevolent kind of way. I've said now several times in this episode that at this time of year, all of, of creation is bursting forth with fresh new life. And I can't help but see the, the beautiful renewal that happens every spring on the landscape as, as an annual visible reminder of the new creation work that God started with the resurrection of Jesus. Every time you see a flower, that's a reminder. Every time you see red buds blooming, that's a reminder. And the promise that it holds for the ultimate new creation that God will enact when Jesus returns and brings the final resurrection. And that visible reminder makes me want to help bring that about in my own day and in my own place and in my own life. And that too, I think, is as God intended. N.T. Wright says that ultimately God will do for the whole creation at last what he did for Jesus at his resurrection, taking a bruised, horribly abused physical creation and rescuing and restoring it so that it isn't just the same as it was before, but will be renewed so that now it's beyond the reach of corruption and decay altogether. And because of Jesus' resurrection, we become resurrection people. People whose hearts and lives have been renewed and whose minds have been enlightened by the gospel so that we not only believe in Jesus' resurrection and in his victory over the dark powers on the cross, but that we become both signs and agents of the new life which will one day flood the whole of creation. Because redemption doesn't ultimately mean scrapping what's there and starting again from a clean slate, but rather liberating what has come to be enslaved and giving it new life. And we celebrate the beginning of that renewal that has already begun to show itself in our time. The forgiveness and renewal and hope that Jesus offers us and, and through us offers to the world are real. The ability to walk through life with a clear conscience is real too, by the way. But God intends, in the end, to fill all of creation with his own presence and love. And in this in-between time, between Jesus' own resurrection and our own, we followers of Jesus are to serve as Jesus' body, his his hands, his feet, his arms, his mouths. And we serve as a kingdom of priests whose role it is to bear God's image before a hurting world and to bring his wise, healing love to the rest of that world as agents of new creation in our own time. Now, that doesn't happen all at once, right? Um, we're still in between times, and, it, and it's difficult, hard work. And, of course, there's opposition to us and to this work that we're trying to do, as there always has been. But the kingdom has come, and it is bearing fruit of, of healing and mercy and love and redemption throughout God's good world, and has been since the first century. And all the while, we wait for the day when Jesus will return to complete that work at last. But the fact that that will happen is a certainty. And the reason we know that 
is because Jesus walked out of that tomb by the power of God. Folks, the resurrection is more than just a doctrine. Jesus made that point in, in, um, in John chapter 11 when he raised Lazarus. It's not just a doctrine, it's, it's a person. Paul says in Romans 1.4 that Jesus, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. See, with the, with the resurrection of Jesus, a new day had dawned in the world. Karl Rahner, uh, Rainer, Rahner, I don't know how you say his name, in his book, Everyday Faith, he says that Easter is not the celebration of a past event. The Alleluia is not for what was. Easter proclaims a beginning that has already decided the remotest future. The resurrection means that the beginning of glory has already started. And that means that God's good world, including human beings, spoiled by hostile, hostile and destructive forces, is now going to be remade. And it started when Jesus walked out of that tomb. And that, folks, is why Christianity is the best thing on the market. Evil and darkness and despair and injustice, and oppression, and persecution, and hurt, and animosity, and abuse. Those things do not have the last word. The last word is resurrection. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. As always, we'd appreciate it if you'd tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please rate us and review us and, and do the things you're supposed to do on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, wherever you go to get your podcast. Please visit uh, us on our Facebook page for the Jesus Society podcast. And do check out our website, um, www.thejesussociety.com. Uh, you can find us on YouTube and Odyssey as well. Uh, and if you search for us there, you'll find us. If you'd like to support the show and our related ministry, click on the Support TJS link on the Jesus Society website to find all about all, all about our ministry and how you can uh, support us if you want to, if you feel like God's calling you to do that. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, as always, you are greatly loved.